0: Welcome to another edition of the Grizzden Podcast. We were gonna say this is episode six, but we're not gonna do episode numbers anymore uh, because you know this is a this is not a podcast that is uh, like serial or anything where you have to listen to the previous ones to uh, to be caught up. You can you can jump in any time. Uh, we're we're happy for you to join us uh, now or in the it's future. Kind of like anytime. the
1: Office, right?
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. You, th- there's you. You could see the thread. Maybe you can hear the thread from from beginning to end. But it's not very. It's not very important. You can just jump at any time. No structure. I'm gonna uh, welcome my co-host. We're just, we're just here. Brantley Davidson's here. Let's go. Ty Smith is here. Hey. Uh, we just had a great interview. Uh, with actually my father-in-law, David Boyd. You'll uh, be hearing more from him here. Cool a little
2: job. Bit later. Yeah. He I a, wouldn't want to have it because it sounds difficult.
0: Yes. He has a very interesting job uh, for the Grizzlies, and he's going to tell us more about that later. Um, so, yeah, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at GrizzDen. Follow us on Instagram at Grizz underscore Den. Our podcasts are everywhere. Um, just search Memphis Grizzlies if, you, uh, if you're not sure what to type in, and we'll come up on uh, one of the first two pages. So thanks for joining us. Uh guys, Marcus Morris has been canceled officially.
2: He's the absolute worst. Big ol yikes. Good.
0: Yeah, we're going to um we're going to talk more about uh that tussle that happened yesterday, I but we just had some breaking news come through from uh Sham Sharania. Do you have that tweet pulled up, Ty? Um yeah.
2: So, he uh the All-Star reserves were announced. Um, or the Knicks? The
0: next news, the the, the suspensions. The next
2: news, okay, yeah, yeah. So we ha- we is... also have we have
0: two pieces of breaking news. Yeah, we're going to start with the this is, this is it breaking the uh, suspensions.
2: Yeah, so Jaron and Guderich Marco, um, both suspended for Friday's game against New Orleans, which is really unfortunate because that game could be, like, yeah, I think I said this when we played them the first time for MLK Day that this like the the future 2023. Western Conference Finals matchup. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people are looking forward to that, mainly Jaw versus Zion. But it's going to hurt because I was kind of interested in seeing Jaron guarding Zion potentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. that yeah, that's unfortunate. And Alfred Payton also got suspended a game. I don't know how it was not more than that. Um, and then Jay got fined and the worst – person on planet earth also got fined yeah let's you know what
0: let's just skip everything let's go straight to this game let's talk
2: about it i've never disliked anything more in my life than just all of the knicks they're yeah. the worst they seem so entitled which i um, did De- dennis smith jr was walking around the court like he was cp3 all of a sudden um trying to like get all these calls shoved guterich once on the sideline reminiscent of Robert Ory shoving Steve Nash, <laughs> except I would say this was even worse.
0: <laughs> Goodrich is my boy.
2: Yeah, I Goodrich, was... protect him, man. Yeah. Different country.
0: He's already wondering what's going on most of the time, probably. Um, so the Grizzlies terrible. The Grizzlies um, were up most of the game. They went on a run in the third quarter. Um, then the game sort of slowed down. A lot of stops and starts. A lot of a lot of calls. And then the Knicks just started making some really weird yes. shots and sort of got it back into terrible. it. It's yeah.
2: like watching the game, you're like how are how do they have 12 points and they had like 32 at the end of the first quarter. Their offense is just whoever gets the rebound. Yeah. I think I slack this Gribble, dribbles like maybe 5 to 10 times and then try some pull-up jumper.
0: Yeah, so if you missed what we are have been referencing for the past 3 minutes, uh we were up, we had kind of sealed the game. Jay Crowder still playing hard as he does um we make a basket. He is kind of lingering still when they're throwing the inbounds past the Knicks. And he uh, steals the inbounds pass, uh, dribbles behind the three-point line. The unwritten rule in the NBA is if you're up with less than a minute or so, you probably shouldn't take that three. But at the at the end of the day, he's a competitor. And uh, he, he, he shot the put up the shot, and then Alfred Payton comes in and just basically form tackles him into yeah. the uh, into the court courtside seats, and Jay gets up, retaliates, and then that was a bench clearing, uh, almost brawl, you could say, were it not for Taylor Jenkins and Jonas Valanciunas just restoring order. Um, but yeah, I I was most impressed, uh, and I said this earlier with Ja Morant, by his composure, by getting shoved by the aforementioned Marcus Morris, but just doing nothing about it, even kind of laughing at the situation, I thought that that was pretty impressive. And, like, Ja was really just trying to start stuff for sure. Kidding, he was just standing there. Right, yeah, he was doing nothing. And
2: Marcus Morris was like, oh, let me find the smallest guy I can. Oh, Ja will do. And then just gives him a shove, and Ja's not even looking. And then Jonas goes over there, and then all of a sudden everything just kind of stops, I thought
1: you were going to say you were most impressed with Ja because he had a plus minus of plus 42.
0: That also happened. Let's talk about that.
1: I, I mean, I don't even know what to say.
2: It was nuts.
0: Unbelievable! Um, and
2: just you could tell too, which is the funny part. Like sometimes you would see Brandon Clark leave a game and have like a plus twenty-five on like sixteen minutes, and you're like, oh, I don't really see that. Last night, like you, it was very obvious that Jaw just basically dominated the game.
1: Glad that um, that was selected as a big game um, in our ongoing analysis of the season for Jaw because even though um, his points was right at a season average, he had ten assists, so that'll bump up um, him there and uh, for any plus-minus um, analysis that I want to do in the future to prove my theory, uh, this is definitely going to help it um, <laughs> <laughs> on an analytics basis.
2: Yeah, it's going to help.
1: I, um,
0: we should mention, the Grizzlies are now firmly in the eighth, eighth spot, uh, up two and a half games on San Antonio, and since we last spoke, where we had endured two of the worst losses of the yes. season in, in a row, we have, we're 4-0. This team bounced back. Uh, we were a little worried about the rookie wall. Uh,
2: yeah. yeah. Doesn't look like it's been all hit. All fingers pointing at me over here. <laughs> Rightfully okay. so. I definitely – I didn't say it was going to happen. I just said it was something to watch for. Um, and I was I was terribly wrong.
1: But it's good content, you know. I mean, you got a so lot of different things to think so what about. it's all about. We're just here for your good, gross content needs. And, you know, here's the thing is that <laughs> it, as you sort of look back and look at these four games – I think one of the fun things is that sure we beat the Knicks and duh, they suck. So we're gonna beat the Knicks. But we also beat a team like Denver. Wire to wire. Why you know in a slow paced game. Close, Our post pace, pace was ninety three, which is
0: we held them to under a hundred. Detroit points.
1: is decent. Now they didn't have Blake, yeah. so whatever. But at the same time, they're not playing terribly in the Eastern Conference. Um and who's the who's the fourth team? i th- Suns, Phoenix. The, the Suns. Suns. Yeah budding rivalry Phoenix Suns, uh, not bright future. Also, I hate. I yeah. hate a lot of teams Yeah, they're right like now. the new Clippers. So yeah, they're, they are. They, they're they bug miserable. the crap out of me. So, it's just, <clears throat> in terms of like a week, if you're looking back at when we last hung out with everybody, it's big time. That's fun. It's been a
2: big
0: week.
1: Yeah, and if so the whole thing about Ja
2: potentially hitting the rookie wall didn't happen, but we also talked last time after the New Orleans game about how we tried to, like, play a different style right, when we saw Jaron had the mismatch down low, so we fed him like four or five times in a row. And it didn't really work out, but I think we all agreed to be a really complete solid team. We need to learn how to win different ways. And then, hey, look out, what did we do at Denver? We slowed the pace down. We held them to less than 100 points. We played really good defense. Valachinas was awesome on on Jokic. That was huge. Um, And we just won a different way, which – Again, this team, I just can't. I, I can't get over it. It's, it's nuts.
1: And maybe the last thing you would say about this New York game, since we're a little out of maybe cadence. I hate all of them. Um, yeah. Is Brandon Clark's big game? You know, he was you know plus three for the night. Had seventeen points. Um, I think this was close, not to a season high, but if not his season high, is his second or third um, big night. Um, had five total rebounds and assists, uh, three steals and a block, and was. Uh, played big minutes because uh, JJJ or Triple J, depending on the way that you like to talk about him, was in foul trouble and really couldn't get consistent. Zero points in the first half. Zero points yeah, first half. Struggled. Came out of the second half, and they ran like three or four plays for him, and he sort of um, cranked it up. I think did really well. With Love a, that, you know, too. Kind of a couple go-to moments for him, hitting a three and some block action. But I think that's one of the things that makes sort of the whole next-gen um, you know, at marketing component fun is that when Jaron it gets into these situations, which it hasn't been as many from a memorable perspective as last year. You're able to bring in a guy like Brandon Clark, and the excitement stays there. Even though maybe just dips a little bit, uh, just a touch, but Brandon plays a little bit differently and partners with Jaw in a great way, and you still can expect some big things, which is awesome. If you
0: watch the fourth quarter, Brandon Clark, when Knicks actually started to make a run, was the key. Uh, He had like four or six of the biggest points of the game because it took whatever the life life the Knicks had and just completely shut it down. And
2: he was doing like little things. Like he ran the floor twice in a row and... It's amazing how people don't run the floor anymore. And he got two wide open layups. So, Grizz next-gen, a thing to me last night, too, that really stood out was coaching. Like, the Knicks looked like they, I mean, Fisdell was there, who everyone thought was going to be an awesome coach. and. Now the guys, Mike Miller. Who Everyone I had, to, I had to fence. check the Mike Miller. I was like, wait, did he leave? Like, I <laughs> had no idea. Not former Grizzly Mike Miller. Yeah, not yeah. that guy. Current Tiger coach. Um, but, Miller. man, like, I just couldn't get over it. We kept talking about this during the game. You watch the Knicks offense, and it is horrendous. Like, they have zero flow, nothing going. It just looks so stagnant. And Taylor Jenkins, 34 years old, right,
3: yeah. with
2: a rookie point guard running the show. And, like, our offense – even when we're not like scoring, it we're moving. Like things are happening. You can tell there's a system. Like people are getting good looks. Yeah, uh, we lead the league in assists, and yeah, we've had over 30 assists for the. I don't even. It's been like for the last two months. It seems like. Um, I, it was crazy. It's Really impressive, with to, Jenkins. Yeah, sure. we this. don't talk about Jenkins enough. I think he's he's amazing in the composure he had last night. Like you could tell. So another thing, really, I know we're staying on this long, um, but during the uh, review. Of the play when they were trying to figure out who was getting the um, foul, who's going to get ejections, whatever. The Knicks were just all standing like in the middle of the court, like all spread out. Jenkins had everyone on our team in a like a tight huddle, like talking to every one of them. I'm sure saying like, "Don't do anything dumb. Show class. Like, be respectful. Just." Don't look like idiots like they are. Like, look at how they're Take, acting and don't taking do that.
0: advantage of every moment that he has to. Whether it's drawing up a play or getting his guys' minds right. Yeah, it's just he's taking advantage. He's
2: yeah, he's really impressed me, man. I uh, I'm super excited about him.
0: Uh, yeah, we don't talk about him a ton, which is I mean, who's going to talk about a coach? But. The I, great. I threw this in our slack uh last night watching the game and I know RJ Barrett was out, but like Julius Randle was spending the most time out yeah. of anybody on their That's team at the point the guard.
2: When you get the rebound, you just <laughs> start dribbling.
0: <laughs> it really felt like a pickup game. Like it felt like there were it five right. guys who were just standing around and were like, Yeah, let's I guess we'll we'll be a team. I yeah, don't know. It was bad. Um can I throw a few stats out for you guys? Bring it. Um let's go game by game actually. Detroit. 27 points, 47% shooting. Oh gosh. Phoenix. Hold on. <laughs> Scrolling down. It's so many. It's 20 points, counts. 53% shooting. Denver. 24 <laughs> points, 58% field goal percentage. New York. 27 points, 53% field goal percentage. Dylan Brooks. The highest score in the month of January for the Grizzlies in a month where they have already 10 wins.
2: I've been telling uh, you all for weeks that this is this is how it's going to go. I don't understand I don't understand why y'all haven't been listening to me.
1: So um after last week when Will sort of pitched that Dylan is turning a corner for since the week I've been sort of trying to play through my head like what what can I figure out that would maybe help prove this or help maybe serve as a foundation for how do we assess maybe objectively what Dylan's doing and have a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, line in the sand, if you will, for how we kind of measure him and look forward and all those sorts of things. I'm so nervous. Y'all, y'all stick with me through this for a second. We haven't seen this before. Y'all, this this has new. not been discussed. This is just Brantley's brain playing with basketball reference, using all the great data that's available and, You know, shout out to, you know, partnership and Google for helping me put this in a spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah, there are partners. What of it? Okay. So if you look at his 2020 campaign this year uh, in games where he scored more than 27 points. Okay. So you look at those points and then you start to also match up field goal percentage, three points made, three point attempts, three point percentage. Those are kind of like the things that. Without doing advanced stats, you can sort of look at it and say that's where his impact is. He's maybe guarding a top defender, but he's not really filling up the stat sheet in assists or blocks or steals because he's not really asked to um, so much. So, he scored twenty. He scored more than twenty-seven points seven times this season. In his rookie season, just for a kind of a statement, he did that three times. Okay, so his rookie season, we're sort of saying even though this is Dylan's third year in the NBA, he didn't really play last year at all, so this is sort of a second it's sort of finicky, but whatever. He's a rising star. He's a rising Still. star. Yeah. So, on his first contract even, you know, we got a big decision on our head. hands. So, he's done that 7 times. However, if you sort of start to play with some of those stats across field goal percentage, three points made, three-point attempt and the and the percentages, where is maybe there sort of a evening off that may separate him or put him in a category of players that is sort of emotional historically for Grizzlies to where you're like, mm, this is his trajectory. I'm not really sure if we really like what is where he's going, all those sort of things. So what I'm sort of qualifying right now as Dylan's run is this, is that this season of those seven games, three times he's also made two three-pointers while also shooting 50% from three point. Um, from three-point land at least, right? So he could have had two more than two three-pointers and at the same time shot 52% from the field goal percentage, okay? If you go and look um, since the modern three-point era, which is 1984, and look at players in their third season, so let's say that my our theory on the whole second season thing is stupid and you have to actually measure him against – other players in their third season how many times have those players had similar stats in those same four categories okay so stick with me i know this is sort of confusing. no I'm, we're, I'm tracking okay so dylan's done that three times what i found is that players who when you sort of start to get in the they've done that eight times in their third season that's where you start to see maybe like a these are the ones that you want to keep on your team. So if you look at guards and forwards, which is sort of maybe the hybrid of what Dylan fits in, Reggie Miller did did it twelve times. Vince Carter, Damian Lillard, and Peja all did it eleven. Durant, Hardaway, Nowitzki did it ten times. Buddy Hill, LeBron, Kevin Love, C.J. Glenn, Rice did it nine. Embiid, Houston, Jokic, Chris Paul, Terry did it eight. Okay. <laughs> That sounds pretty nice. So, now, so, so you're like, duh, I would take any one of those players on my team, right? Now, when you go in and you actually look at players that did it between six and four times, you get a mix. You get some superstars, but you also get Andrew Wiggins. You also get Michael Beasley, who did it four times. Mm. You also get Rudy Gay, who did it three times. So, I'm sort of proposing that if we watch that sort of criteria of stats, if he starts to creep into the seven or eight, I'm not saying we have a superstar on our hands because that seems sort of crazy, but... It's a pretty interesting it, indicator. It's an interesting indicator. If he hovers around the six times, that's like maybe a high usage where it's like he's high volume and it's sort of matching. He could fit into some of the Michael Beasley, Rudy Gay stuff where we're like, dude, I don't want another Rudy Gay on my team. We just got rid of that guy. It was great.
0: So in case we had you know any ears glaze over... What did Which is definitely possible? <laughs> what what <laughs> remind us of the, the criteria? Yeah, Ty just fell asleep. Remind us of the criteria real quick of what you were just measuring so that people can have this at top of, at top of mind. At least twenty
1: seven points in a game. Okay. At least two three points made. Uh does say two at least two three points made while shooting fifty percent from three point percentage and from total shooting fifty two percent from field goal percentage. Okay. Wow. That's pretty interesting. He's done that seven times? Uh, no. Dylan has done that three times this season. This season. He scored okay. m- at least 27 points seven times this gotcha. season. Gotcha. Which but, is like, but, nothing, you know, a lot of people do that. But that yeah. specific criteria,
0: he has had three of these games That's so right. far. Okay. Right. So we are officially on watch for the 27 point, basically January, 50, I'm sure. 50% over two threes. He's Actually, so he did
1: it. His seventh game of the season, he did it against Minnesota. We won. This is not going to be surprising because we don't lose when Dylan scores more than twenty points. Which is whether or not we, you can trust that. I'm not really sure. I think we're eighteen and one on the on the year when he scores at least twenty. Yeah. something like that. Yeah. And he did it against New. He did. He did it against the Knicks last night, and he also did it against Minnesota um, back in early January. So those are the three games he's done it. That's wild. I love that. Three and zero in those stats.
0: I love that. Um. So hopefully we can continue to see the validation there, and if it gets over seven, I propose we have a party. <laughs> what do you we say? We have Ty? a
1: major consideration. <laughs> um.
0: Okay. So real quick, let's run through the games, unless y'all have anything else at a, at a higher level uh, to call out.
2: Um. No. Not really. Okay. Not at the moment.
0: So Detroit. Um. We were tied late at one oh five, and uh. Then fourth quarter jaw. Uh, Took over, and also I I would say Jaron had twenty four points, I think, in the first half, and had twenty nine for the game. And then Dylan had a slower first half, but then came came uh, through in the second half. So it felt like a team win, and your best players came out and played like they should in the fourth. Yep. Um, Also mentioning Brandon Clark had fifteen and eleven. DeAnthony Melton had uh, fourteen and five and four. And they were both plus twenty seven and plus twenty one respectively. The um, Anthony Belton has been sidelined for the uh, for a couple games. It's sore body, sore body. Load <laughs> management, baby.
2: Someone said it's something sore, sore body. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Wait, is that serious? Is yeah, that said? I think someone did say that,
0: but it's a sore hand, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, Phoenix uh, just felt like Booker came out and had thirty six points. Shot forty six percent. We went up early. It was thirty to eighteen at the end of the first quarter. Uh, they battled a little bit back in the the third quarter, and again just pushed through and got the win in the in the fourth. Anything from the Phoenix game?
2: Um, I mean, not a ton. Yeah, it's just I just, I hate Phoenix, so I love beating. It
0: is really nice beating a team like that because they yeah. are you could say conceivably on the same. At, in the same sort of timeline, they have a player like Booker who yep. should have made the All Star team. Uh, I just remember we didn't go back and uh, talk about the yeah, All Star, okay. but
1: Jaw didn't make it. <laughs> <So> Jaw didn't <laughs> make
0: it, and Shaq thought he should have.
1: Lame. Yeah. Uh, well, I think when you look at just the summary of the box score in the Phoenix game, that's you know what you would be excited to see from a point sort of just distribution, where Dylan had twenty, Jaw twenty three, Jaron twenty. Valenzinus 12, Brandon Clark, 10, Man- Melton, 10, off the bench. Like, that's a really good break, yeah. you know, sort of even distribution of the players that you would hope would be scoring a lot. Yep. And um, from an activity perspective, you know, one of the things that maybe we haven't said, at least on this podcast, is at least um, Ja over the last four games is averaging right around 10 assists per game. Mm-hmm whereas his season average is right at seven. So I've sort of started to feel this from him. If you actually took out the New Orleans game where he or – I'm sorry, the Boston game where he had five assists, um, the previous two games before that, Cleveland and New Orleans, he's literally averaging nine to ten assists a game, which is um, at least three over his season average. So he's, I think, starting to feel a little bit something different from the game – I think we're starting to see maybe his court vision somehow even get better um, at this point in the season, which is really interesting, and uh, Phoenix was a great display of that.
0: I think it's interesting, because if you watch Ja, one of, his move, this is his move every time, he they have the high screener, whether it's Valanchunas or Brandon Clark or whoever, uh, come and screen, even Jaron sometimes. He gets around the screen, they'll either switch or the guard will fight through, but Regardless, the the defender will be on his back, and you see him stop in the middle, and then that's where his options open, it seems like. And so it's funny because in the first three quarters, I feel like he's being intentional about dumping it back off to Valanchunas, who's rolling, dumping it back out to Dylan, and trying to get everybody involved. And then in the fourth quarter, you see him just hit that floater or take somebody off the dribble every time. It's just like that is his go-to move. If you watch the games, you'll see him do that yeah. 80% of the time. Yep. Uh, which is really unique because it seems unstoppable.
2: Yeah, and his vision's nuts. So I feel like, I mean, I feel like a few people have mentioned this, that he sees, like, three passes all at once. Um, yeah. And he'll, like, make an extra play and, like, pause a second. So there's a – when we played Minnesota at home a few weeks ago when John Jarrett basically took over in the fourth, he essentially, like, double cl- like, turned back, like, twice. So he got by his defender – like fake, like he was gonna pull back out, went back in the lane again, and then like finally threw it back. Um, and there's a clip that shows Robert Covington. So Jaron was at the top of the key. Robert Covington cheated over, but then Jaw turned it back to the goal, and so Robert Covington like went back to his main guy, and then Jaw turned around again. So he like saw so many things happening at once. And to speak on the Dylan thing, honestly, the his best asset is. You kind of have those guys that like when they when it leaves their hand, you're like, oh, there's there's just no chance that's going. That's how Guterich is to me, um, sadly. <laughs> that's fair. But like, like on the Wayne Ellington award, yeah, 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 yeah pretty go. much. So when Dylan is like kind of floating between the corner and the and the wing, and he's just wide open, and Jaw gets in the lane and kicks it to him, like it's there's a good chance, like a standstill shot, like it's going in, and I can't think of many guys in the past that we've had. And I can't think of a type of player that we would want in the future to receive those passes because Jaw's going to get you the ball. That's one reason it really hurts. So Jay Crowder didn't play against Phoenix. Um, Kyle Anderson took his spot. Um, I love Kyle Anderson. I think he's great. Love his defense. I love how he can, like, start a break. Um, he does, yeah, his, his game's really fun to watch. Kind. Of. I mean, it's not, but it is. But it's there are several instances where he is in the game with Jaw. And, of course, he's because everyone runs to the corner. Even Jerry, about like Kyle? Kyle Anderson, yeah. yeah, yeah. He'll run to a corner because that's what our offense is set to do. Um, and Ja will find him just wide open in the corner. And he either takes seven seconds to get his shot off so the defender recovers, or he just can't make a corner three. Um, so I think it really hurts. We'll talk about trade stuff later. I don't think he needs to get traded, but it's really tough for them two to play together, I think.
1: Yeah, I think on, it's fun. The only – positive that I think we've seen in the past couple of games with Kyle and Ja is he's so good. Kyle is so good leading the break. And yes, it, and it great does, at that. It does seem to free Jaw up I think to maybe run the break more um, instead of having the ball in his hands. Yep. I think the other thing that I've just sort of anecdotally noticed on Jaw, and it, I, I think I started feeling this in the Phoenix game and I really noticed it last night in the Knicks game is that I don't know how many players that I've ever noticed while watching NBA games that I would say that their athleticism took away from their court vision. Meaning you're so attracted to Jaws athleticism that you fail to see at times how his court vision is maybe the leader in what his athleticism is doing right. for him. Meaning like he's going up and doing these ridiculous like 360 passes, but it's um I would argue that his court vision is what's allowing him to use his athleticism to find those players and not the reverse. Mm. Like he sort of knows the players that are on him to draw them to him, to then kick them out in the appropriate places. I think think there was a Jaron kick out that he had in the corner where it was like, that was, that was dumb. How did he figure that out? And, um, it's his awareness of the court that, elevates his athleticism. His
0: vision dictates what he's going to do rather than his athleticism. Yeah, yes. and like, so he and sees And the something. athleticism that complements right. what he's he wanting sees to do.
2: something and he has the athleticism to do it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think you just, you mentioning Kyle just then, is he, is he like the most forgettable person on our roster right now? Um... Because I we have not discussed in the him main rotation. I'd say yeah. Since the first episode, I think when yeah. we were just talking about p- players we liked a lot, and I yeah. I still like Kyle, but it's unbelievable. Like I forget that sometimes that he's just he does like little things well. Like yeah, like Brantley was saying, he
2: leads the break really well. Um, he's a really good passer, especially in transition and stuff. And he'll like he's one of the few people that get like a defensive rebound and immediately look up, which doesn't happen very much on our team. Um, and Jaw like loves to run with him, but again, I think pairing them together is tough, because um, neither one of them are like spot up, standstill shooting threats. Jaw's shot pretty well from the three, um, but that's not like not his game. He needs to have the ball in his hands, and we're at our best when Jaw's got the ball in his hands. And Kyle Anderson's main, I guess, attribute or the thing he's best at is with the ball in his it's hands, playmaking. creating yeah. offense. Exactly. Yeah, um, but he's so has it be
1: because it's like and
2: his stat line has just been it, really non unsexy.
1: But well that and you know if you really look back, you know from a game perspective, he really has a has not eclipsed 14 minutes ever. Yeah. E- except yeah, I mean, when he starts past, pretty much for the past like 5 games when Joe is out. When Jay's yeah, out. Yeah. He so he starts, that's he why plays. he's been a little forgettable cuz he really just hasn't that's been, true. he hasn't been used in big games. Well, moments. there you go. Yeah. yeah numbers
0: back it up. Well, so we 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 took care of business in the three games last week that we should have. Detroit, New York, Phoenix. Yep. The game that we were nervous about was Denver because Denver is in the top three seed in the West, and yet the Grizzlies led wire to wire. Uh, yeah. Really unbelievable. And I felt like the matchup to watch was was Valanchunas versus Jokic. Valanchunas ended with 23 points and 12 rebounds. Um, I felt like in, in, in sort of a tribute maybe to Mark Gasol, he elevated his play when there was a, a big-time Jonas player. is good, man. We never talk about he him either. He is
2: so solid. He's super solid. I, I think I mentioned it wasn't on the pod. I think I just told Brantley this. I was like, I want him to retire, Grizz. And yeah. Brantley looked at me like I was insane. It was sort of a bold statement that I still haven't gotten over. I, I mean, I why not? I think he's great. And the dude, like, again, I think this all leads back. I'll talk about a little bit more after we kind of talk about individual games. But, This stretch, how it looked like we were just going to be disastrous. We had just gotten off two blowout losses. um, And then we rallied back and went four in a row. Yeah, three of them were supposed to win. But those are still hard, like a back-to-back in New York. We got in New York last night at 3 a.m. But a part of all that, I think, is coaching staff is really good. I want to harp on them again. But also, like, everyone knows their roles. And, like, I don't remember – when's the last time Jonas, like, closed a game almost that, like, you can think of? If Jaron's not in foul trouble – like, BC is pretty much closing the game with Jaron. I guess if it's matchup-oriented, he won't. But Jonas sits, like, a lot of the fourth and seems clearly fine with it. I think, yeah, so that's another guy who we gave him decent money. We didn't give him a huge contract, but it's descending, so you can already tell there he's willing to, like, work work with people. Um, I think he's been great. Yeah,
1: he's, he's been on a four-year, $45 million deal. Yeah, yeah, descending every year. Or three year. excuse me.
2: Yeah, 3, it for three? 45. three. Yeah, yeah, 16 yeah. this uh, yeah.
1: year, 15 next year, 14 the year. That's after right, that. yeah. And I think I, uh, one of the things that just stuck out to me in the Denver game, and, and Will, I know you, you want to jump in on this, is that I think that you, you look around the league and there's just some games. Last time we talked, it was like, man, this is not a JV game. Really looking at New Orleans, that was fresh in our brain. But there's some games positively, like the Denver game, where you're like, how many – teams have a center like jv where they can match up with Jokic, go toe-to-toe with them and win and i don't know if there are a ton of teams that like look at a team like boston who's really struggling to find a good center yeah would they not rather have someone like jv versus sort of their kind of like piecemeal group of centers together now they have crazy athleticism, so maybe they're worried yeah. about
0: it well to me with other teams you have centers who you're you're having to whether it's a um I'm going to use maybe Clint Capella as an example of a guy who's, um, no, obviously he catches lobs, but most of his value is maybe this, this defensive sort of like Jaron's role where he comes around like and a blocks. A rim protector. A rim protector. Yeah. Yes, thank you. So you have that, but then on offense, if he gets the ball with five seconds left in the shot clock good and has luck. to create a shot, yeah. good luck. Yeah. Uh, or it, same with like a guy like Gobert. They're used to catching these lobs, but they're, they are elite in their defensive sure. stopping. But with Jonas, you have a guy who can stop Jokic on one end, but then he can give you 23 points yeah. on and the other
2: end. So we've done a few times where things have gone awry. We call a timeout, out of timeout play, everyone clear out. Jonas goes to a block, and we just throw him the ball. Yep. And he backs his guy down and does a little jump hook, and it's a really good look. He can get a good look pretty much whenever he wants. And that's been huge too.
0: Yeah.
1: I want to say this, and this will go into maybe my other dorky analysis that I have um, for this week, is that one of the interesting things about this team that's fun, that allows us to go toe to toe with a team like Denver is uh, triple J's flexibility and the way that he's able to play offensively and be very versatile defensively allows us to play Jaron. With a guy like JV, whereas someone like Clint Capella can't. Totally. um, Or they're going to get destroyed on one side of the floor and it leaves us flexible on both ends. Yep. And so that thought is what sort of triggered me looking into what Jaron did against Denver, which is where he made two three pointers and had seven blocks. Um, And one foul, by the way. uh, Yeah, crazy. Only 13 players since the 84 season have done that. Period. So, since 1984, only two only 17 or 13 players have made at least two three-pointers and had seven blocks. Only five players actually did this in their second season: Rafe LaFrance, Joel Embiid, Kristaps Porzingis, Lamar Odom, and Jaren. Only Jaren and Kristaps actually did this in their rookie season. So, mm. Jaren's already done it twice, Man. once last year and once this year. So when we talk about, like, rookie sensations or unicorns or whatever you want to call about Jaren, that type of stat, the ability to impact, play flexibly, maybe struggle offensively. I mean, he didn't have a huge point production. I think he only had, like, ten points. Yep. But he had seven blocks. He impacted the game in a different way. Like, look, those are real numbers. I'm not making those up. That's coming from a great data source in Basketball Reference that's saying that there's other awesome players that have rarely done this. And you could say, like, the thing that I was just talking about with you guys is, like, think about the players who you would think might have done that before. Giannis? LeBron? No. They haven't. And so, is Jaron LeBron or, you know, Giannis? I'm not trying to make that claim. It's just interesting that... You know, their game didn't resemble it. His is, and I, I think provides us a really unique way to win versus maybe other players and teams
0: have. And Porzingis is a really interesting comp for Jerry. Yeah, it is. I mean, yep. you have a guy who can just stretch the floor but is also just seven feet tall. Yeah. And can play on the block if needed, but isn't necessarily – that's not his primary skill.
2: Yeah, and, like, you had Carlisle, so Dallas's coach, Rick Carlisle, basically – probably two or three weeks ago, maybe longer, the TNT crew was like, get Porzingis on the block. Of course, like Shaq and Charles Barkley was like, get him on the block. He's not being a true low post guy. And Carlisle was like, yeah, we've done a lot of research in this, and that's just really inefficient. And we want Porzingis on the three because that's where he's at his best. And we're seeing that with Jaren, right? He is pretty much on the perimeter. I will say Jaren I feel like is a better perimeter defender than Porzingis, and he still has both knees intact, which Porzingis does not – yeah um no but doubt. yeah, you're right. similar games, similar point guards, right I mean Doncic is great at getting in the lane and making plays so does y' ja. uh
0: any final thoughts as we uh as we get to our next part of the podcast?
2: yeah, just yeah, one thing i I mentioned it earlier, but to have two blowout losses back to back where things we looked like we were like this could you know we could kind of spiral a little bit like things might catch up to us. Especially against Boston, we looked, our offense just looked really rough. Everyone looked tired. Um, the New Orleans game, it just kind of, I mean, it was just the perfect storm on their side. Um, but I remember after we were listening to the post game with Jenkins after the New Orleans game, and one of the reporters asked, Hey, are you worried about this like carrying over to your team? And he was just like adamant. He was like, Definitely not. Like the locker room is super strong. They were all saying, like, Not our night. That's okay. We're going to bounce back. And they didn't bounce back. And I honestly, I was like, this, I mean, we could lose five in a row. We could lose six in a row. I don't know what's going to happen. And we come back home, win the next one, and then go, yeah, four in a row. And that's credit to the locker room, credit to, again, the coaching staff, which we probably don't give enough credit to. And this is kind of going to lead into our next little segment stuff. I feel like this locker room, what we have going is is kind of special, regardless of playoff stuff. So, we're gonna talk about trades here in a second.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great tease. Uh, so we're gonna have a, a quick interview with uh, with my father-in-law actually. Okay, David I'll save Boyd. it for when we get back. And then there. we're gonna save whatever you had because I don't I don't want to give anything away. We're gonna have a big trade segment after the interview. Sorry, Ty, you're so mad at me right now. <laughs> I just totally cut you off. Can't wait to share in a second. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll get back to you. Let's welcome David Boyd on. All right, we now welcome on possibly the most special guest of all, and I'm not just saying that because he's my father-in-law, uh, but it's my father-in-law. His name is David Boyd, uh, and he is joining us um, to give us uh, some cool behind-the-scenes look at, at one of the um, the functions of the Grizzlies games at FedEx Forum or the Hustle games down at the Lander Center that you might not even think about. Um, but just happens uh, like clockwork every time. So first of all, welcome to the pod,
3: Mister Mister David. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So you are uh, you if you have ever watched a Grizzlies game, listeners, you have seen Mister David. He is in the second row um, of the media courtside seats, and uh, he is uh, right in the picture when the I guess the refs come and maybe look at a replay. Uh, You're in that second row right there. So first of all, just explain a little bit about what you do at a normal game.
3: That's a good question. (laughs) What do I do? Because you Um, do a lot of – you probably move around a little bit. It it, does. Let me just go over sort of what I do as a team and what our team does. Uh, We have sort of a team of stats uh, crew that sits on the second row, and we have somebody who inputs – we have somebody who spots. We have somebody who we call a secondary person. And then we have generally the spot I work at uh, where I'm on the headphones with Secaucus, New Jersey. And the inputter is typing in whatever the spotter tells him. So starting from the jump, you know, they throw the ball up. We have to, and everything's by numbers. So you would say if, if uh, Jaron wins the toss, you know, 13 tips it to 12, you know, to mm-hmm. jaw. And then everything's from numbers from there on. And everything that happens on the court that you can possibly think of, the NBA records or once it's recorded. So the uh, spotter uh, calls all that out. The inputter types it all in. Secondary is sort of like a checks and balances. And then if something is spotted in New Jersey and they want us to review if somebody may have had a block. And sometimes in the NBA people are so quick, you know, two different guys will block a shot. And so we need to see – Did 13 get it or did 15 get it or who got it first? And so a lot of times New Jersey will call and I'll be on the headphones with them. And then during a uh, free throws or a timeout, we have a big monitor that sits there and like a DVD. We can go back and review certain plays. And our goal and the NBA's goal is to get it right. And so that's what we do, uh, you know, the entire game. So when you – is the secondary the one who's on the headphones or is it the spot – He's on the headphones um the only one that's really on the headphones during a game is me is is everybody else is where they're communicating with one another and as long as the music is not too loud at the (laughs) forum which is an old person that's one of my gripes but uh (laughs) my only gripe but uh usually we can communicate and we don't need headphones um and so uh even when it gets playoff atmosphere real loud uh it's we can still communicate and and that's it's key. Uh, you know, the referees make a call. We have to make sure we key in the correct, you know, if you drew the foul, um, I fouled you, or, you know, uh, you know, whoever committed the foul, who drew the foul, uh, who the foul was on. Um, and then you record, you know, what referee made the call. Um, mm. And so it's just real interesting, all the different stats the NBA wants. And so I'm going to get back to kind of the
0: specifics and, and ask more questions. But first, before th- – for that i'm just interested how did you get your start doing uh this and when, when was the first year that you
3: started um working me personally the first year was the first year the grizzlies came here from vancouver um so 2000 2001 I, sometime I around 2000 2001 i was part of the university of memphis uh stats crew um and when we heard that the Grizzlies were, you know, coming to Memphis, we inquired about uh, if we could help them with stats. And so most of our crew started out as being from the Tigers crew. We've added and, and dropped some people. You know, people have moved, et cetera, through the years. But most of our original crew is still in some form or fashion part of uh, today's crew. That's so,
0: crazy. That's 20 years. Yeah, almost. there's a lot
3: of experience on our crew. And um, – um, you know, and in, in most of our crew, either even still like uh, today, you know, may score high school games or other college games or University of Memphis women's games. So, our stats crew, uh, you know, Grizzlies and, and Tigers is the first priority, but you might see this crew, you know, doing games at Hustle or uh, some of the local high school. You were there last night. Right? Yeah, I was at the Memphis Hustle game doing the book, doing the official scoring. Um, and then the stats crew was sitting right next to me during the game. Uh, we just have one row, thankfully, at the Hustle games. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we, we score their games too. So a lot of yeah. the same people score the same, same. Uh, you know, both the Hustle and the Grizzlies. So
0: since you've been there from the beginning, I'm guessing that a lot has changed. As far as what they're maybe requiring, I feel like there's just so – their attention to detail
3: has probably gotten to a, a higher – Definitely. uh, When when I first started keeping stats, probably like at a middle school game, stats used to be basically the book. You kept a scorebook. You kept fouls, points, timeouts, maybe technical fouls. That was basically it. And then when we started with the uh, Memphis Tigers, you know, you added, you know, somebody kept minutes, somebody kept uh, turnovers and block shots. And and that was just with a pad and a pencil, you know, pencil and a notepad. Um, computers came in, uh, probably in the nineties, we started, you know, having it more computerized. And then we've had just with the Grizzlies, a couple different computer systems that we've dealt with. Um, and the NBA over the years has increased on what all, you know, they want from us. Like I said, we didn't record what referee initially made the calls yeah. and now we do, or who fouled who, you know, we just knew the foul was on you. Well, I, you know, drew it. And so yeah um it, you keep that stuff now um it's just amazing what all they want a few years ago they asked us to keep assists like if you threw it to me and i got fouled now in the real world that's not an assist if i go to the free throw line and make it but we kept them for a year because they wanted to see if that was the stat they wanted to change and so they've not adopted that but um that was something when it was interesting we kept it for at least a year when did uh new jersey secaucus coming to play um two years ago and i think because they went with a different software company uh was the first time that we got the nba uh evolved and and that was the first time where they will call us and ask us to check stuff and it's really to me it's a positive thing because our job has always been to get it accurate Mm -hmm. and all secaucus does it gives us another set of eyes while we're working the game you know, people walk in front of us, players come to the table, you know, Shaquille O'Neal blocks the sun. So, you know, you couldn't see what was happening when he was at the table. And so certain coaches love to stand right in our view. So sometimes we, you know, we don't know who made the pass. We have to guess, you know, maybe who made the pass to somebody. Usually we can look at it on our replay, but sometimes it's nice that Sakakis can also call and just say, you know, sometimes the, the You know, if it's a steal or a uh, turnover or a block shot, it's all defined by where the ball is at the time the ball's hit. You know, Mm. you've gathered and you're on your way up, it's a shot. If you gathered but you haven't really moved up yet towards the basket, it's a steal. And so sometimes we'll get in a discussion with Sakakis saying what we think, and then they give their point what they think, and we come to a conclusion. And a lot of times I feel like that's my job as the person on the headphones is I'm talking with our crew who's live at the game, and I'm talking with the folks in Secaucus who are reviewing it, trying to make sure we see the same thing and then agree on what is the proper or best call.
0: So if there is a situation where you are seeing something and then Secaucus is seeing seeing something else, who gets the final say in that circumstance? Well, I
3: would love to say we do, but I think in reality, Secaucus probably does. Um, They review every game, so you know, they'll go back occasionally, not very often, and and they may think one of our calls may have been a 50-50 call, but they may think, you know, it should be a steal for you instead of, you know, a different player, and again, it's one of those, usually it's a 50-50 play, most of the times uh, they agree with what we call, and and they do a wonderful job in the summer, they uh, take us out to Vegas, or they take all the crews out to Vegas and train during summer league, NBA summer league, so they want to make sure every arena is scoring it the same way. So if Jaws playing at home, the same pass he makes in New York City is scored the same way. So they want to make sure there's not any favoritism. And so I think they would do a really wonderful job of ensuring that takes place. Yeah, and you are just telling a, a funny story about theory behind
0: John Stockton in Utah what were you saying well there's
3: always you know rumors back in the day that uh and John Stockton would average 14 15 assists a game you know running the pick and roll with uh Kyle Malone um uh, or Carl Malone excuse me you know it was interesting that were they really legitimate assists of course every game went on TV back then and so you know you just never know and so that ensures that and I was telling you I think earlier just before we were recording you know, like. I always felt bad for Mike Conley because Mike would throw the ball into Zebo or somebody who would back an opponent down and he wouldn't get an assist because the way the NBA defines an assist, you have to immediately lead to a basket. So if I throw it to you, you've got to be, you know, on the move or going to the basket or catch it and shoot. So if you create your own shot, which is basically what Zebo did 90% of the time, conley wouldn't get an assist for those so i always felt bad for mike and thought he really deserved more assists. Yeah. but it was just the system they were running at the time
0: yeah that's interesting for sure um so i w- one thing i always thought was was neat and and didn't know was was going on was how often the stats that are recorded get distributed oh. to everybody sitting down so could you take us through what happens there
3: yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, back, again, I go back to keeping stats probably early 90s. I started uh, helping the University of Memphis. It could have even been in the late 80s, and, you know, back then, uh, there was a, a gentleman that I was spotting, and he was typing in what was happening, and during, you know, timeouts, we might print a few boxes for some of the reporters, of you know, at the table, and this is way before, you know, there was a newspaper reporter, and from the home team maybe from the visiting team you know you might have somebody else there from media but now with all the different media outlets and social media outlets there's so many there that every time there's a stoppage in play not not a foul shot but every time there's a timeout or a long delay they'll print box scores and so to me if you're a member of today's media it's so much easier to to be at a game. I mean, in the old days, you couldn't. Of course, we didn't have the opportunity either. You couldn't tweet during a game or all that kind of stuff. Right. But now, you essentially can come to a game and do not have to watch it because you have a stat monitor available for it, it right at your table. You have a stats handed to you all the time. Um, so there's a lot of information that's given to you now. Whereas in the old days, you have to keep your own stats pretty much. If even if you're a reporter, you know, and so. To me, I don't know if the young, uh, younger reporters realize that how good it is that they've come along at this, you know, tech time now where everything's basically at their fingertips. And they have
0: every single timestamp for every everything, right? It's just, and is it
3: delivered electronically
0: to them, or do you have to print them off?
3: Well, not we, you, but just in general, they, they'll hand out uh, box scores, uh, distribute box scores at each of those timeouts to all the media that's there and wants them. They come by early in the second quarter and give you the play-by-play for the first quarter and all the stats for the first quarter. The monitor that you're looking at has all the stats on it, and it has the, the previous play on the bottom each time. And so you can see runs. It will tell you how many lead changes. Oh, let's see that's A lot nice. of the stuff you probably see tweeted out probably came from watching the stat monitor, <laughs> we like to think. And so uh, it's just nice. It's it's wonderful way that – People who cannot be in the arena, I guess even people in the arena, if you're at home somewhere on your phone or whatever, your tablet watch on TV, you can quickly get the information because it is so readily available now. You know, so yeah. that's that's one thing by the NBA keeping all these stats. Doesn't matter where you are in the country, if you got your ESPN app pulled up or whatever, you can basically follow along with the stats we're putting in because that's what you're seeing displayed. Have you ever
0: had to work that computer that is the the uh you know, the spotter's
3: narrating, but have you ever had to be in the other person's shoes? No. They're, they're, we've got a guy uh, by the name of Tom McDaniel that basically inputs most games, um, and he's been doing this for a number of years for the Tigers and Grizzlies, and he it, – it's unbelievable. You can just imagine how fast the NBA game is, but, and it, again, it's all numbers, and he hits, you know, so-and-so a field goal attempt or made field goal attempt the number – If the rebound, you know, sometimes as soon as they get the rebound, the ball's knocked out of their hands, there's a steal. And so he's able to do that, and there's a caller. We've had a caller, the same gentleman, for a number of years. He does a wonderful job of calling it because he knows exactly the right order to call it so that when Tom has to enter it, it's it's just, like, second nature. So it's almost like its own language. It it really is. It really is almost like its own language. Uh, Just... You know, you and me might be at a game and say, well, Ja just took a jump shot. Well, there is there is a just a jump shot in the NBA, but there's also a running jump shot, a pull-up jump shot, a step-back jump shot, a bank shot, you know. Then you got all your hooks, your floaters, you know. The chance – you've got, I think, about 25 or 30 different descriptors describe each layup, finger roll, turnaround, so – Gene, who's our main caller, does a wonderful job of telling Tom the exact order and what kind of shot it is. And then we got some great guys who are secondary, so they're also keying in things. Anything that Tom doesn't get exactly right, maybe the shot was Tom put it in on the monitor like eighteen feet and it really needs to be sixteen feet or <laughs> it needs to be in the paint instead of out of the paint. And so you all that is charted. And then if you see ever see fast break points, you know, that's generated by us. We have to decide did they shoot quickly enough in the general rules long if they shoot before av- not after a made basket but anytime after a miss if you shoot with 18 seconds on the clock or more it's a fast break mm. if it's 17 or less it's not a fast break oh that is interesting so that's how you sort of decide that in the so NBA. even
0: if even if the de- let's say there's like four or five maybe if one guy one defender trailing but we put up a shot with 20 seconds left
3: on the shot clock that's a fast break it's a fast basket. break yeah man that's interesting and and you sometimes you think it's a fast break cuz maybe the rebound took a while to get controlled of and then by the time they get it to jaw maybe there's only 18 on the clock well jaw quickly comes up feeds somebody somebody shoots a 3 with 15 on the clock it seems like it's a fast break but it's actually not because it's already you know the shot clock is already too far down so you just have to keep your eye on that part of it too but uh again there's it's just a interesting way to watch the game a lot of times though it's so with the nba it's Pretty intense with everything you're doing. That after when the game ends, if you ask me what the final score was, I probably don't even know. You know, because I was about to ask actually if if you're even able to get
0: into the like if you're able to make any observations apart from what is literally
3: happening from second to second. A lot of games you can't, especially you know, there's so much going on, especially if Sakakis is asking us to check stuff. So, where a lot of times you know, you might get a chance to catch your breath during a free throw or a timeout. If you watch us, usually during a free throw or timeout, we're reviewing something, yeah. checking something. It may not even be Secaucus. You know, we may have written down, we're not sure who got that block, or let's go back and look at the assist, you know, at ten fifty eight, did Did Ja make a move to the basket after he got the pass, or did he, you know, we sort of want to look at it again. And so we're usually constantly reviewing things. You know, a lot of times if you're at a game, you can check out somebody – somebody's doing crazy stuff in the stands or something like that. We basically cannot let our eyes get off the court because in the NBA, you never know. Look at last night's game for an example. If the stats crew in Madison Square Garden probably thought the Knicks right there at the end of the game were just throwing the ball in, they probably looked up and all of a sudden tried to figure out why did Crowder have the ball if they'd taken their eye off. Because, right. Because, you know, he. you don't assume he's going to be down there at that time with 50 seconds to go or whatever. So – that's why you got to constantly keep your eye on the game, especially so the spotter. The spotter cannot get distracted for any reason because if he misses it, it, then then you're having to go back and try to figure out. And and you can't, when the shot goes up, you can't say I don't know who shot it. You have to give some number, even if you can't see the player's number. And that's where, because of the experience on our staff, we pretty much know the guys in the NBA. So you know, even without seeing a number, that you know that's so and so on the Knicks or so and so in the Trailblazers. And so. Uh, that helps, you know. Especially with nowadays, it seems like every time a team comes in, they're wearing a different uniform than what they usually yeah, wear. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, you had mentioned a little bit earlier before we were recording
0: um, that you don't have a lot of experience in the in the I guess the front row and what all. The, but could you take us I guess through just what those roles are? Because it seems like there's you know ten yeah. ten to fifteen sometimes that are down there just from the, the the eye in the stands, but. What are, the, what are the specifics of the layout down there?
3: Yeah, definitely. I would say not counting the runners who go and make the copies for us, which is a very important role. There's probably eight or nine key people that are at the table every game to make f- sure the game is properly done. Um, the first person that, that you might see is at midcourt. You probably see somebody we call the official score. That's where the referees usually go over before the game or that's where they're supposed to report the fouls. And the official scores' job is to keep the score, the running score, individual scores, individuals fouls, how many timeouts teams have, any technicals. That's what his job is. That's the official book. Um, next to him, and sometimes there's a, we have a female official score too. So I'm just using him as a right. reference here, but we do have females on our staff. Next to the official score, we have uh, the scoreboard operator. So when the score uh, somebody scores it's not automatically goes up on you know in the system he has to make sure he puts it on the right team and sometimes it can be confusing you've coached games where a team's going to the left so you want to put it on the left scoreboard and then somebody yells out you know no that's right. the wrong side so you got to just make sure you know he does a good job of making sure the score's right next to him is the clock operator um, a lot of people probably know the refs where the clocks really on their battery packs they they control the clock i actually didn't know that that's really interesting yeah each of the referees besides their whistle and it's tied into their whistle has a battery pack that stops and starts the clock that they can stop and start the clock so they're the official stoppers you know and starters of the clock but we have somebody who manually can do it also that's on our crew in case you know the referees for whatever reason forget to do it and and it needs to be stopped or if they want to reset a clock So that's our clock operator. And the next to the clock operator is the 24-second clock operator, which to me is probably the most challenging job or Mm -hmm. one of the most challenging because if he or she messes up, everybody in the building knows and the referee stops the game and sometimes chastises them. and So they have a lot of pressure. But we have have a couple guys that do a great job. Uh, Again, all these are wonderful guys and and girls that do a wonderful job in the front row. And their jobs, like I said, if you see a clock malfunction or if you see the score wrong – uh if you see the 24 second clock wrong their jobs you know you would visibly in the arena see it whereas in the back row the media probably would see if we did something wrong or somebody at home might see if we did something wrong but generally we've got a chance to correct our mistakes before the end of the game whereas the front row i guess is more exposed you know their their mistakes are more seen but uh again very experienced crew um and a lot of people that can wear a lot of different hats that can that that can do you know front row jobs or back row jobs. So, like I said, in total, there's probably four people in the front row um, that are with our crew each night, and there's probably five people in the back row uh, each night uh, that that work. So we probably have at least nine people that are making sure all the stats and everything's recorded correctly for the NBA. And I guess, you know, it's. The, the radio
0: broadcaster, like Eric Hasseltine and then the TV broadcasters, Pete and Brevin, probably rely on
3: what you do a lot. Or do they have their own person well, who's... And again, we're very blessed in Memphis. We've got you know Pete and, and Eric as good as you can find on the TV and the yeah. radio side. And what they generally do is each of them will have their own spotter. They'll have a monitor with all our stats on it. But they may have... Uh, their individual stat person just keeps stats on, like Zion Williamson's back, just keeps stats on him. You know, how many minutes mm. has he played, you know, uh, how many shots, you know, they might want him to keep runs. You know, like if somebody goes on a 10-0 run over two tw- two minutes and 12 seconds, a lot of times their individual spotters will do that. So so they each, uh, both the radio crew for home and radio, both the home and uh, visiting TV will each bring or will supply them their own spotters. Um, uh, mm. Sometimes a national network will come in, ESPN or going to College Day CBS would come in for the Tigers game. They'll usually bring their own person. They'll bring somebody that's been doing stats for them that their talent, they're the people who are speaking on the mics really trust and know what they want from each game. So a lot of times they'll bring their own people in. That's
0: really interesting. Um so you've done a lot of games over the years. Do you have any any specific memory that just sticks out as far as a game that you were at that just will be will always be uh,
3: maybe like a favorite
0: game or anything like that? Something interesting.
3: Probably the the goes back to the first time you know when the grit and grind group made the playoffs. You know uh, some of those uh, advancing. I think it was the Western Conference Finals. Just. I can't think of this just one particular game, but just with the yellow towels, you know, flying around and the crowd and the noise, that just great atmosphere. Uh, those those are definitely some fun games. Um, I think back to one game we were at the Pyramid years ago, and uh, there was a certain referee that was trying to give Lorenzen Wright his second technical, but he didn't realize he would already given him an earlier technical, and it was real funny because – all of a sudden, like, he just looked at, let's say you were on the court and gave you and said, no, give the technical to Will Walker, you know, and and even though you weren't involved in the play because he didn't want to throw Lorenzen out of the game. And so it's always funny to see sometimes how different referees operate. Um, Again, they're they're all class acts, but uh, some are, uh, you know, more friendly to us, you know, with – you coach a middle school basketball team, and you know, everybody in your league has a zero to five number or a you know, 111 right. to 15, yeah. so you can easily hold up your fingers and you know, pretty much that's 15 or 51. Well, in the NBA, that could be six, that could be 61, you know. So, a lot of times when the referees will mouth to us, the stats crew, and say, Found 15, found 51, or something like that, we really appreciate it. But sometimes you'll get a ref who just quickly gives you, you know, <laughs> and they may not have the straightest fingers. Some of them had broken <laughs> fingers. So a lot of times, if you ever had a game and you wonder why the PA doesn't quickly save the fouls, we're still trying to figure it out because, you know, if you can't sometimes read the fingers and sometimes <laughs> we'll have to hit the horn and bring them over and ask the referee. And some don't mind that. They appreciate we're trying to get it right. Some just, like, think. They're just like, what? Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. like, we're, you know, we should – be able yeah. to figure that out, and so again, I mean, again, they're all class acts. They just have, just like people, they all have different personalities as far yeah. as dealing with them.
0: Man, well, this has all been so interesting. I always love hearing about what you do and the rest of the crew, the the true unsung heroes of the <laughs> NBA, I would
3: say. But uh, thanks yeah. for uh, coming and sharing. This is this has been great. Well, thanks for having me, and again, we appreciate the Grizzlies for uh, letting our stats crew, you know, do each of the games because. Uh, uh we enjoy it and I think we've got a good crew. It
0: sounds like it. Thanks again.
3: All right.
0: Thanks again to uh Mr. David Boyd. Major Brownie points for me. Um <laughs> so we would be remiss if we did not um mention the passing of Kobe Bryant. Um and I want to do it sort of in this context of uh the Grizzlies history moment, and then I'm gonna let uh time Brantley chime in with any thoughts they might have as well. Um, I've been working on a project that we're going to be rolling out here. Uh, I'm not going to promise any sort of date because, um, it's turned into a very big project, but, um, I've been studying, uh, the concept of grizz killers and, uh, Kobe Bryant was the absolute number one grizz killer. Um, And you can look no further than his game against the Grizzlies on uh, March 22nd of 2007 when he came to the FedEx Forum and dropped 60 points, which is still the record for the highest amount of points scored um, against the Grizzlies. And it wasn't. Um, He shot 54% and just absolutely um, gutted the Grizzlies. And the Lakers ended up winning by only two. Uh, the Grizzlies team that they were playing wasn't too bad, but and Kobe's team, if you look at it, Kwame Brown and Smush Parker were two of the starters. Um, it was one of those teams where he was having to do just about everything. Um, the guy was just a, an animal. He was. He was an animal. He was one of the um, the most competitive guys you will ever see, um, and he it there is a big, big hole now in the yep. NBA world without him. Um, you had to think that just with his what he was doing both with his his daughter and working on just a lot of basketball related stuff with her, but also um what he was doing well, he's just coming to games. He it felt as though he was gonna be present uh in the NBA world for just years and years to come. And uh he will be missed. Um guys, do y'all have anything you wanna you share about that
2: uh nothing specific um but yeah it's just super sad um so i got the i found out because will you slacked a link to woge and i was like someone iggy just got traded for sure um so i looked down opened the link and it's his tweet about basically just saying kobe bryant has died in a helicopter crash um truly got sick to my stomach which is nuts um, I don't know why it hit, like, a lot harder than a lot of other things that can happen. You hear sorry, so many terrible things happen all the time. Um, but for some reason, that hit super hard. And I think because it was crazy unexpected. Um, like, you th- and people have said this, like, you think of Kobe and, like, almost immortal, mm-hmm. right? Like, bigger than life itself. Definitely bigger than basketball. Like, he's Kobe Bryant. Um, everyone knows him around the world. And it happened just like that, like a fluke thing, like a helicopter crash. And apparently this helicopter pilot was, like, phenomenal. And they were traveling, like, from one area in California to another. It's not like it was some long trip. Um, so, yeah, I think that was my biggest thing. Just super unexpected, super sad. Kobe was great. Uh, everyone can learn from Kobe, for sure. Uh, meant a lot to the game. Uh, loved watching him play. He was a stud.
1: Uh, but, yeah, just super sad. I think one of the things that as I've reflected on this, Tyne used the words immortal and that sort of comparison there's been other I think, you know, media members, whether it's been Jimmy Kimmel or other folks who have maybe used <clears throat> language like superhero and things like that to describe Kobe and I think it's when you look at maybe the impact that it's having first within sort of the NBA community, primarily with players and the way that they are uh, opening up about the impact that it's having on them and the way that they're sharing maybe within their close friends, you've got, you know, guys like Kendrick Perkins or Shaq, I think maybe historically closed off kind of big tough guys who are opening up and apologizing publicly to different, you know, folks or maybe admitting to things that they uh, had missed or, or, or feel like that they missed out on and just maybe loving on Kobe in the way that they really meant to kind of breaking down that, that typical masculine persona. And then, you look into also maybe just the, the 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 superhero thing that we're all looking at, and it's like folks that followed the NBA, you expected Kobe to be able to show up, and if he wasn't putting up 60, he was having a 60-point impact on the game from his competition, the way that he led his team members, the way that he fueled everyone, and you, ex- you expected superhero-like activity from him. So much so that as a Grizzlies fan, you hated going to games when the Lakers were in town, just because you know there was this animosity. It was like, well, wow, all these Kobe fans, these fake Kobe fans, are going to be here instead of actually Grizzlies fans. And and then when you hear news that someone like that is tragically taken away, it's unjust. It feels unjust, and then it trickles down to even casual NBA people to where you're just like, man, that it just it gets at you in a different way, and you know to for for me i believe that this isn't our in place and so when you see we're we're made to want that superhero thing to come true and it's like i know that i have a savior that's done that in jesus and so i i think that there's some sort of thing that that ultimately, I think potentially God is using for his good to do that, maybe even through some terrible unjust situation like Kobe. And that's what I want to believe. And that's what I I think through faith do believe. And so it's from a pop culture perspective, if you want to say that, or just the way that (laughs) you're starting to see that, I think, in other faith members in the NBA community, it's having that type of impact. And it's in a hard way, it's, it, it's really hard. It's been really weirdly hard on, on me and, and other people around me. But at the same time, it's also, I think, sort of turning into like this beautiful thing that maybe can have a, a, a potential positive impact in a lot of areas. And, and hopefully, you know, what I would like is, is for, you know, God's kingdom. For sure. Um,
0: Just in his honor, I, let's pause 24 seconds here. And
1: uh, then we'll pick back up with the rest of the podcast.
3: All right, we will uh, pick back
0: up here and close out this episode of the Grizzden Podcast. Uh, next week is the trade deadline, exactly one week from today, and the Grizzlies are expected to be uh, a major player in this trade deadline. So um, let's talk trades, guys. What do we? What do we think? What do we hope? But also, what do we think realistically will happen?
1: Who I hope we st- only
2: trade Iggy. Uh, he, took, he took my thing. That's that's what I was that's what I was gonna say.
0: <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I really Great do minds. believe that.
2: I really do believe that. I think I think we should just trade Iggy. And it goes back to what I was I was saying earlier. So when we hired Jenkins, when we had everything, just this complete rehaul of everything. Front office, uh, new stars, grit and grinds. Officially, like we don't have anyone left from any of that era. Maybe you could argue Dylan's from that era, but not really. Um, new coaching staff completely, Um, everything's new. And one thing Jenkins kept preaching over and over and over again is culture. He's like, we are trying to build a culture. We are trying to make something sustainable. And that's crazy hard to do, right? Like not a lot of teams can create this sustained – like the Spurs do it and people consider him them the greatest – Maybe franchising all of sports. The Patriots are also able to do it, but like teams aren't able to do it. Even great, great. Like you, we play the Knicks. Like look at the Knicks; they have all their resources, but they 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 have nothing else. So I think it's crazy important, and I'm not even including playoff stuff right now. If we make the playoffs awesome, even if we don't make the playoffs, I think it's very important for not just the near future, but just the ultimate future that we keep pretty much everyone on the current roster. And, I, I mean, I could be talked out of it if, again, we'll talk about Jay Crowder stuff. Um, Brantley mentioned he's untradeable. This is like a month ago. Uh, how he knew fun. it would come to this, I have no clue. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think building a culture is very, very important. And I think all the guys on the team, from Jonas, from Jay to Solo, everyone plays a huge part in that. And I think developing Ja and Jaron and Dylan and Josh Jackson is now on the team. I think little things like that could go a very, very long way, not yeah. just in the near future, but in the distant future, to just build these guys up. To Yeah, it's, we're building something special, and I would hate to see it just, I don't know, get affected. And I know it's the NBA and stuff like this happens all the time, but I feel like we really do have something – more going besides the win and loss comma. like you can just see we just it looks it looks good it looks special what we have so
1: let me ask it this way and maybe first with a little bit of a setup is that jay and solo and iggy to me seem like the three most probable players definitely that could be moved you know in the deadline period is on a big contract So it's going to be really hard for a team to match him. And you could arguably say that his production has been better than Jay's has, I think, maybe from an efficiency standpoint. standpoint, Jay's obviously starting, so it's different. Jay has had a little bit of a rough go. He's had some really big moments, but maybe not consistent. Uh, And Iggy is sort of obvious and on his own. I think my question is, you know, when we were doing – you know, trade breakdowns at the beginning of, um, you know, our podcast relationship with you all, we, we looked at maybe some options where you would have to throw in Dylan into some of those types of trades to make things work. And I just don't feel like, cause this is not objective, that any type of pick or asset that we're going to get back in the trade deadline period is going to be good enough to at least continue this team forward from an emotional perspective. For now, sure. Um, I also would love to see one of Jay or Solo re signed to a decent deal um, that could at least keep them on our roster to start next year and then be used for a sign-in trade maybe later down the road if that's needed. Um, because let, let's just say it this way. If we're experiencing the same thing next season – where we're competing for the eighth seed, that to me still feels sort of ahead of schedule. Yeah. So why, why mess that up when you're going to have more salary cap to go get something different and you can at least keep some of these veterans around to help continue the momentum. Yeah. I,
0: okay. I agree. And also I think that it's, to me, definitely important to keep one out of the two of your active guys. So either Jay or or solo, uh, Iggy, obviously get him out of here, but I, I do, I am not opposed to getting a deal for one of those. I will actually be a little disappointed if we don't, I think I'm there. Um, so for instance, I don't know what the Timberwolves are going to be doing this, this, uh, deadline. A lot of people think that they're going to be shopping, Robert Covington, they've obviously had a really a down year. Um, they are running, to me, they're kind of running out of time with a guy like Carl Anthony Towns. Um, it feels like the Anthony Davis situation. They bit. need to make some sort – they're in this weird mode guess, where they have to – they're they're rebuilding, yet they want to win now. They're in that weird in-between. I feel like a, um, a trade that gets as much money off of their books for – maybe this summer, uh, to offer overpay someone like uh, Malik Beasley or somebody who's a restricted free agent. Uh, a Joe Harris is another one, just somebody who can come in and basically be the opposite of what Wiggins is. Yeah. Um, so uh, like a Solomon Hill for Gorgie Jang, and I don't know what the asset as draft capital would be there. I would assume that the Grizzlies would want something if they're going to take an extra year of Gorgie Jang. Um, but something like that where we yield some sort of draft asset um, would be fine with me. Crowder, it's hard. I know we had talked about the Nate Duncan podcast where one of their fake trades was Crowder to the Trailblazers for Trevor Ariza. Yep. And uh conditional first, I think. which be
2: first-round pick. This lottery protected this year, so it would— Portland would keep it, but also lottery protected next year. Thinking Portland would be better, less injuries, and we would get a late first round pick. So we're I'm just gonna say I don't like that. Pick.
1: Yeah, what you just I'm more down with what you're discussing for solo a little bit, but I yeah. don't like the the Trailblazers option. Well, be. yeah,
0: because I mean he signed a t- two year, twenty five million dollar deal this offseason, so yeah. he would be on our books for another twelve and a half, thirteen million. Yep. For next season, and he's he's really old. I mean, yep. Crowder's still sort of in his prime. So it's an interesting uh, back and forth. Because, I mean, Solo is one of these locker room guys that you don't – he's not as vocal as Jay is. Like, he's not going to be as demonstrative like last night in the New York Knicks. I think, I think the Grizzlies are in love – or Grizzlies fans are in love with Jay Crowder for after sure. last night. Um, but so is another guy that has, it sounds like from the people that are inside, has just as big of an I- impact Yeah, And the locker room is just as important. So I do think if this team is going to make any type of run this season and they are ahead of schedule, one of those two guys is important. But I'm, I wouldn't necessarily, in my opinion, limit my thinking to just Iggy.
1: And I'll make a, a quick point because, Ty, you were sort of hinting on it. I think that if the Grizzlies don't try to see what they have in Josh Jackson, then they haven't. They have maximized that trade as much as anyone could have, could mentally think was possible when it happened. However, now that there's some roster spots opening up, he's done so well in the G League with the hustle, and now he's you know got his first minutes with the Grizzlies last night against the Knicks if he sort of starts to show signs enough to where you maybe could re-sign him to a decent deal, at least for this year, I think those veterans are going to help stabilize some sort of environment. Not to say that he's going to disrupt something crazy, but it is just a new player who was a previous top draft pick, and they're going to provide some foundational support to a guy like that that he hasn't ever had in his career,
2: ever, with the Suns.
1: And I th- I just think that that is really important. And again, it's just stuff that you can't measure. And I'm maybe a reason provides you that if you get him back in the in the Trailblazers, but I don't know. I just yeah. there's no guarantee. Yeah. It's not
0: proven, and it's it'll be an interesting test. This trade deadline will be the first one with the new front office and Taylor Jenkins. And we had heard from multiple media members now who are on the podcast, and Peter Edmiston and David Cobb, that were saying that the collaboration is an important part of that relationship. And if Jenkins strongly feels like either Crowder or Solo is providing a necessary influence in that locker room, who knows? The front office yep. could work with him on Your that. Your culture point is right on. Yeah. And I don't
2: think Jay I, I think Jay would be the last to go for sure. Um, it came out kind of when trade stuff was was sparking probably a month or two ago. I don't I'm terrible with timeline stuff, but basically one of the ESPN, one of their 10 guys that cover the NBA nationally. There's so many of them. Someone said that basically Memphis is essentially like, okay with keeping Jay. We're not really shopping him that much. Um, so my thing about him is if we do resign Jay, like Brantley was talking about earlier, like that's a long-term asset. Right. So like, let's say we do sign him this summer to a three year deal worth the mid-level, which is like not the Kyle Anderson contract, roughly. Um, We still have that asset. And we were talking earlier before that we have Utah's first round pick. We have Golden State's first round pick. We have all of our other first round picks. If we get a first round pick for Iggy, we have a lot of first round picks coming up, including all of our own. We have Jay, who's an asset. Well,
0: Besides the one we owe to Boston.
2: Correct, which is yeah, Yeah. essentially going this summer. So you're thinking moving forward, we'll have all of them. Right. Um, And if you look back, so name name a free agent, a big free agent we've gotten in the last, I don't know. Parsons Baby. Exactly. We've gotten one big free agent, and that's because no one else was signing him because he didn't have knees. So I think it's very important. Yeah. It's very important to stock up as many assets as we can, whether that is draft picks or players that everyone will always want. Someone at every deadline for the next three or four years will always want a J Crowder. It will always happen. It's happening right now. It's going to happen in the years to come. So my thought is if we do keep him, I wouldn't be that upset. Not to say that we would always have him on our team. He would retire Grizz and all that kind of stuff. But we keep the asset, right? And if he leaves this summer, that's okay. Uh, we we have that money to play with to sign someone that's probably going to do just as good of a job on the court as he as he is now.
1: Yeah, and and you all can go listen to this yourself. But Rosillo had Woj on to his podcast today, and Woj was basically making the point that I'll summarize um, since we're sort of towards the end of of today's pod that the the new sign and trade is or the sign and trade is kind of the new trade deadline where there may not even be as much activity to be anticipated because it's actually more valuable for these franchises to sign these folks and help control these players destinies a little bit more. Um, and, and if, if they don't send them somewhere, then they're just comfortable keeping them because they know what they've got. Right.
2: Especially with restricted guys. Um, so all restricted free agents essentially like Dylan this summer is a great example of that. Um, he's restricted this summer so we can easily match anything that anyone offers but if a certain team really wants him we're obviously not going to let him walk and just be like you know what we're not going to match their offer because we could always threaten like not we're going to match it so the only way you're getting him is if you do a sign and trade Um, the thing with Jay is he's not restricted he's unrestricted so essentially if he hits free agency we have no hold on him at all like he's open to go essentially wherever he wants Um, but I've I don't know, man. Maybe it's just my Homer hat over here, but I could see him not hating the idea about staying in Memphis for another contract.
0: Yeah, it a, a good comp might be, but I'm saying this in a way that's uh, a comp, uh, a, a detractor would say is something like a Tyreek Evans where we didn't trade him and then he just walked and we so got nothing for happen. him. So that can't happen. Right, but but I'm saying it's sort of the reverse because – right. Jay Crowder is it, we, the team was just in a completely different place then. We yeah. had we were at the end of a road rather right. than the beginning and that culture wasn't as important cuz the guys who were the culture makers were about to be dealt and you know right. in less than 2 years. So That's a great point. and I we mean, put Tyreek on the block, right? Like we benched well, him the last two games. He didn't he
2: didn't dress. Right, exactly. But like then that was everyone the biggest. knew. And then we brought him back. So was, everyone knew in the summer, like, yeah, we're not re-signing him. We tried to trade him, and it didn't work out. Right. That's not the same thing with Jay. Like, we we're playing Jay. We're probably maybe even declining offers on him right now to keep him for the rest of the season. Yeah. So I think going into the summer, he would definitely take way more pressing in and keeping than, than like, Tyreek would.
0: Do we have any deals that we love other for Iggy other than the Mo Harkless, LA Clippers? I think that's probably number one. Yeah. To me, at least. Because I and think then,
2: Harkless could be a guy for – of why like we could re-sign him too. He's expiring as well. Yeah. Um. But I mean, we he's a he's a good player. Like he's a yeah. A, especially if he's like your sixth, seventh, eighth man off the bench. Like that's yeah quality.
0: And then the the Dallas trade is the other one with Courtney. It would Lee. Just be Brandon's a really good favorite. second round pick. Yeah. Yeah. Love Courtney. Yeah. Lee. yeah. Courtney but, Lee um, would
2: come and go, and we would get Golden State second, which will probably be the thirty first overall pick. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, who knows? We have we've gotten Deontay Davis with a thirty-first overall pick or something like Shout that before. Out. But we also got Dylan in the forty-fifth. True. Um, so maybe this front office, and we also traded up to get Brandon Clark. So maybe a little bit of fun in the
0: late first, early second round. Who knows? Well, um, that's gonna do it for today's pod. Unless there are any final final thoughts for Hammer Nail Coffin, but th- we're just all uh. We're just going to be waiting to see the Woj bomb Uh, or the Shams bomb drop. I'm interested to see. Um, Iggy's going. He's going somewhere. But I think that's it. Yeah. It's going to be interesting if there are zero moves.
2: What is your – okay. If you were to
0: say over under one and a half moves, what are you taking? I would take the over. I think some teams are going to – it's easy right now. I think the 24 hours of the deadline day is going to be nuts. Is a – Time period where teams start to second guess everything they thought they knew. Yeah, and are, if not somebody us, becomes not us, they somebody's going to talk themselves into Jay Crowder, and I think they could overpay. Um, but we'll see. To I us. don't. I don't know the trade. I'm not claiming to right, have right. any teams on the radar. You would just say more than one. There's always something unexpected, right? Um, that you can't forecast. So we'll see.
1: I'm taking the under. Taking the taking under. the under? Okay. because because the, the front office is going to value culture. Last question. I hope
0: so. If do. <laughs> Iggy does not, if we don't find a deal for Iggy that we love, are you team buy him out or are you team no. keep him on the roster to be as don't petty buy, as don't possible?
1: Buy him out. Be petty. What is-
2: it's not petty. Bring him back. Let's let's really <laughs>
0: solidify this eight seed.
2: I mean, why not?
0: I don't think he would play.
2: No, nah, I'm kidding. He should go play golf with me. Invite me to Southwind, my man. That's
0: a great way to end this pod. Thanks for joining us.
2: <laughs> that's a, that's on, a hammer-nail coffin, if I've ever
1: heard. Of it. That's Come a
0: hammer-nail coffin. Thanks for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Um, we'll see you guys next week.
1: Okay.